Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, Holden here. And I'm Jake. And we are so excited to tell you about the last podcast network, Country Jamboree in Nashville, Tennessee, at the historic Ryman Auditorium on June 18th. Holy shit, Jake, this is going to be amazing. Now I know what you're thinking, what is a Country Jamboree for a podcast network? Well, it's a (laughs) super show where literally all the shows from the last podcast network will be gracing the stage. We're talking the OG boys, last podcast on the left, page seven with uh, Holden McNeely, uh, Wizard and the Bruiser with also Holden McNeely. No dogs in space. Brighter side. Fraudsters. Fraudsters. Someplace underneath. The story must be told. Fraudsters. It's going to be an incredible show. Fraudsters is definitely going to be there. It's going to be an incredible show. Come check it out. Again, that's Nashville, Tennessee, June 18th. Ryman Auditorium. Last podcast network country jamboree. Don't miss it. Tickets available now. Hey, it's me, your awkward teen girl wizard, Holden McNeely. They'll say, autopsy at my autopsy, and no one will be as dead as me. And I never noticed the curve of her trunk, and I never noticed his electric junk. We might just have found Electric love. <laughs> Thought you were going to pick a different member of the family, electric but uh, let's go love. with the Topsy song. Let's Hold go it. with the song about Thomas Edison and the elephant he murdered. <laughs> Bad stuff happens in the bathroom. Guys, that's <laughs> the, it's the music that I'm here for, Holden. <laughs> Uh, yes, that's right. It is our episode on Bob's Burgers, uh, and of course, that involves songs and um, a wonderful family that we've all grown to know and love. Uh, it is this new generation. It's like, i just thinking about it now. I mean, mine was The Simpsons, mm-hmm. right? That was my animated family show that I quoted every day at lunch with my friends that I watched religiously for sure. And then I think Bob's Burgers has been that for a whole new generation. But what it does is so special. And I don't want to just say it's like, and it's, but it's not just another Simpsons. There's some, there's something going on behind it. There's something amazing when it comes to Bob's Burgers and the heart of it all. Now, yeah. And the comedy. Holden, I'm going to assume that you came across uh, Bob's Burgers the same way a lot of people is, which is, Maybe your uh, religious devotion to Fox's 
Sunday animation domination uh, programming block was not as strong as it used to be when you were a kid watching The Simpsons and Futurama mm-hmm. and King of the Hill. Maybe you didn't catch as many episodes of The Cleveland Show and American Dad and Bob's Burgers <laughs> thrown in the mix. Come on. I was a Clevelandite. Oh, I okay. mean, I religiously watched that um, unfortunate caricature uh, every single week. But uh, on streaming, you discovered Bob's Burgers and the... Uh, the slow burn of the show, the way that the characters kind of endear themselves onto you, the way that every episode uh, kind of hits a little close to home, the way the characters uh, are driven kind of from a character-based position of love, and it's not just about, like, cutaway gags or uh, pop culture parodies or political zings. Like, everything feels very believable and grounded and... The vocal performances are weirdly subtle and like it's just kind of the antithesis of the uh, of the big uh, joke pop pop animated sitcom that we're used to. Yeah. And it wasn't until it kind of found its until there was actually five, six, seven seasons of it Mm -hmm. to binge all at once that you truly grew to love it, because that is what I went through. To its credit too, talking about how it differentiates itself from stuff like. Simpsons, Futurama, I'll even throw in there, um, and and things of the like. It also doesn't really much do that rug pull of like, oh, this is a silly comedy show, and now we're going to make you cry. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't even actually do that either. But what it does is it captures the mundanity of everyday life and the, the you know, I think I'm kind of going through this a little bit, uh, like admiring this a little bit while watching this show, while also watching The Kids in the Hall mm. new season, because there are sketches in there where it's just like normal ladies in an office talking like normal stuff that you always hear ladies at the office talk, right? And then kind of in the same way, Bob's Burgers sucks me in to like, Oh man, I just remember, you know, I didn't have a the, the same, you know, I don't have like two sisters or anything like that, but and and I didn't, you know, work for my dad's, you know, restaurant or anything like that, but still the conversations they have, the little moments they have as a family, you're just constantly finding threads from your own family to theirs. While at the same time, really being uh, having a lot of admiration for also the ways in which they are more of a loving family or a, a you know healthy family than than even yours were, and I think those all happen at once, and it just sucks you in. While at the same time, honestly, at the end of the day, just the comedy is so good, and the and the characters, right? I mean, I think at the end of the like. Punchlines sure are great, and and all of the like the comedy writings there, but those characters are just so well developed and funny, and everybody just is has their own unique voice uh, in such a wonderful way, and yet the gelling that happens between them all. I mean, the key here, I guess, is family, and from what I've learned about you know what we'll get into about how this all came together and the cast and the writers and everything, um, they are like a family. And I think that's why uh, it translates so well to the TV screen of, um, of, this, of this wonderful family dynamic. I think it really is because this is a um, non-biological uh, family that we're actually seeing uh, with the, the, all of the cast members and the writers and everything. And, you know, and knowing what I know about, like, the New York comedy scene, I know... 
a lot of people in the cast and whatever. They've been working together for years and years up at, uh, up before Bob's Burgers even happened. And so why you're like, wow, I can't believe just how how well everybody gels together in the chemistry. It's because they were all, they were like preordained as this cast. This this script was, you know, this initial concept and first script was written with every single one of those people firmly in mind mm-hmm. to play their roles, which is also very unique and wonderful for the show. And why just the key word again is family and the heart behind that. And uh, it, it, it can only come from, and it makes me lament a little bit, and I still have it, right? But actually, I can't even lament it because I lament the good old days of those early days of comedy in New York is what I'm lamenting, honestly, and all the people we met and would see rightly. But still, Holden, can we have I'm one least... conversation where you don't go into a sinkhole about thinking about what your comedy career could have been? We live <laughs> in the now. There's thousands of well, people listening to, say, to this podcast. I was about to bring up the now, and the now is like, I'm blessed to say I still have a family that I work with all the time. I'm, I'm going to do a show Ed and I wrote the first sketch we've written in like five years, and we're going to go perform it this Sunday as of the time of this recording. And like that's still there. And I literally moved across the country. Sorry, Jake. You're also my family, but. Eh, more like a uh, buddy from college. <laughs> <laughs> you're like a buddy cop. You're my buddy cop film. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. But I moved over here, you know, to be closer to all these people that I've been working with since college. And. That's a blessing. That's a true blessing. And these people behind the show are truly blessed as well to have been able to have such an incredible career together. And some of them, weirdly enough, sorry to bring it up again, we worked with like yeah. <laughs> while in New York doing comedy. And that's the surreal thing. And why probably my gush is a little different. Like, A, just wasn't watching as much TV. Sadly, uh, you know, and this is on me. I turned my back on comedy for a while, like in terms of what I was seeing, mm-hmm. anything that was coming on television, because it was painful, honestly, to watch because I was unhappy at that time when this was really getting big. I was unhappy at that time with my own stuff with comedy. So um, I didn't have this like obsessive period of my life. I feel like I'm waiting for, especially now that we've done this episode and I've been like rewatching uh, or watching episodes for the first time. I'm actually like waiting for the sick day to happen mm. where, or like the sick weekend where I just like have a fever and I'm in bed for two days straight. I will just binge the shit out of this show, right? <laughs> like it is just so fucking watchable and so well done on every level. Uh, and, you know, I definitely in a lot of ways missed out. And at the same time, I firmly believe, and I already said this once, but I'll say it again. I would have been quoting this show every day at lunch. <laughs> if this was a show that was ha- airing weekly while I was a TV junkie in middle and high school, it would have been, I would have been fucking right there for it. And I'm glad to be here for it now. It's the, one of the things that people, uh, the word they use a lot when talking about this show is wholesome. And that's a weird thing to say when we have characters writing sexy fan fiction about like yeah. horses and zombies. We have uh, <laughs> titty jokes, poop jokes, uh, fart jokes. You know, uh, famously in the first season, there's a whole subplot about uh, transvestite prostitutes, which is their term, not mine. They've uh, the show has become incredibly. Uh, uh, you know, it's 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 somehow they they delve into taboo topics without it being for shock humor. It's a really inclusive show. Um, 
It's a really uh, progressive show, and it's a very sympathetic show to working class people. And all of this, even the jokes, uh, you know, uh, the famous puns that this show is abound by, whether it's the uh, opening sequence where the store and the exterminator van is a different pun every episode, or the multiple puns on the burger of the day board, always in the background of the of the uh, burger uh, background sets. It's this like very genteel, innocent kind of comedy, even when they're talking about the most uh, scatological topics possible. And I find that really refreshing. You know, when you think of adult animation, when you think of, you know, the Fox animation domination and adult swim, you think of like kind of these like dark humor, you think Rick and Morty shit, but it's almost this like inverse of the Rick and Morty formula where even though in the, okay, I'm, I'm going to throw Rick and Morty further onto the bus. I am pushing Rick Bucket and Morty dude. deeper. Set them on fire. They're already Set under the place. bus, and I'm grinding their face into the tire treads. Uh, Rick and Morty is also a show about the existential unfairness of the world and the horrors of compromise and the mediocrity and and uh, casual evil you surround yourself with. But instead of like drinking a bunch of whiskey and being like, sucks to not be a genius, uh, Bob and Louise and Linda and Jean and Tina persevere. They find their strength uh, in their own morals. Uh, So much of the show is about kind of uh, being a caring and intelligent person in an otherwise cruel and stupid world, Mm. whether it's through Jean's music or Bob's restaurant or uh, Linda's, uh, you know, how Linda wants to raise her kids or Tina's romance. Like, all of these characters have strong moral foundations that is constantly challenged and they constantly find a way to move forward while making all the fart jokes and burger puns and silly little asides possible. It's genuinely a comforting blanket of an animated sitcom. And I maybe The Simpsons at their very very best reach the mm-hmm. same heights. Totally agreed. Yeah. Slice up that pickle, Rick. Put him on a Bob Burger, baby. <laughs> we're fucking over it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, don't come after us, Rick and Morty fans. We love the show. It's, actually, it's a very funny show. I'm just saying. You can't. <laughs> a good sword can't be all edge. You know yeah, what I mean? I mean, this. Exactly. And, and it's nice to see that there's still this vibe out there because it is true. There's so much. I think with our current weird just there's so much cynicism and and you know what not happening in like in media left and right as for good reason (laughs) and it's and deconstructionist stuff it's so nice that it's still people still want to show about a family and they still want a workplace show you know that's that need still exists and bob's burger really fills it very well also very you know that the show is a massive success because just like the simpsons um, not only is it still fucking running and has already had like 200 some odd episodes, 238 episodes, I think, but they finally are getting their movie and mm. you know that that cements them in uh, you know, animated show history as one of the greats. So here we go. Bob's Burgers. 
Bob's Burgers is an animated TV sitcom created by Lauren Bouchard. The show centers around the Belcher family, Bob and Linda, and their three kids, uh, Tina, Jean, and Louise, who run a hamburger restaurant. The show has been running on Fox for 12 seasons, and uh, we've got that feature film hitting the theaters. Is it going to be out as of the time of uh, the release of this recording, or it's it's right around the corner? I never uh, remember I believe the movie is going to be out by the time uh, this episode comes out. So yeah. if it's sh- episode comes out... Monday, the past Friday. It's whatever. If, if you hadn't seen it over the weekend, listen to this episode and go see it. Yeah, get hard for the movie. Wow. All right, let's get into it. <laughs> Am I burying myself right now? Is this the episode where I bury myself, Jake? It's been a week, Holden. It's I been did a week. comedy in New York City from the years 2005 <laughs> to 2017, and I will be heard, damn you. I will be remembered. Uh, no, no, no. But I am excited to talk about some of the uh, history of that s- scene that we were vaguely a part of because of the cast and everything. So let's get into it. First of all, Lauren Bouchard. We have to talk about the man behind the show. Uh, he grew up with a Jewish mother and Catholic father in Medford, Massachusetts. And he actually was a high school dropout and found himself in Boston as a young adult, kind of floundering, not really knowing what he wanted to do with his life. So uh, Lauren Bouchard, uh, definitely bases the uh, dynamics of Bob's Burgers on his own childhood. His father was, uh, when he was living in New York City, his father was a painter, but he uh, paid, you know, he housed his family by working as a superintendent in a building. Uh, his mother uh, was this like kind of stymied intellectual that eventually found work in the Boston area as a professor. And uh, his father ended up teaching high school art. Um, The uh, family was actually struck with tragedy. He and his little sister uh, lost their mother uh, when they were in Boston. And that kind of uh, really took a toll on the family. It kind of like uh, led to the kind of uh, uh, lack of drive and kind of uh, darkness that kind of compelled Bouchard to start kind of retreating and kind of backing away from his education. Um, He wouldn't describe it as an unhappy childhood, even though his parents didn't have a lot of money. He was always uh, entertained and engaged and had lots of uh, space to kind of frolic. And, you know, he was living on a a derelict dairy farm at one point with his folks. Um, But yeah, out of, you know, he literally was brought into his principal's office because he was not attending classes. And the principal was like, you want me to kick you out, but I'm not going to kick you out. This is your choice. And upon hearing that, Bouchard just got up, walked out the front door and never went back to school. Hmm. And he ended up kind of just floating from nightlife gig to nightlife gig, you know, being a bouncer, a bar back, a bartender, just kind of uh, earning his living at night and just kind of uh, working on his drawings by day. He even as a little kid made a little business card for himself that was like Lauren Bouchard, cartoonist. But it wasn't really going anywhere. He said of that time, I had a lot of creative aspirations. I wanted to write. I wanted to do music, etc. But I didn't know how to approach any of those things. And then he said, one day I was in Harvard Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
and bumped into a guy named Tom Snyder, who had been my grade school science teacher. He had stopped teaching and started a software company. Within that, he had started to do a little bit of animation and had just begun to think about breaking that side of his business off and doing it for television. Tom had gotten some interest from Comedy Central. The network wanted seven one-minute pieces featuring comedian Jonathan Katz, who was living in Newton and still does, as a therapist who interviewed stand-up comedians as his patients. So Tom asked me, do you still draw? I knew at that moment that I was getting lucky. This was a lucky break on par with winning the lottery or something like that. Suddenly, I felt that I had a chance to get into a job I was suited for, and I was right. I quit bartending, went to work for Tom, and never looked back. Tom Snyder was uh, the teacher, was the, yeah, the science teacher at the same school where uh, Lauren's father worked. So he would have been acutely aware of, like, Lauren Bouchard's uh, life story up till that point. And it really was, like, at once desperation, at once kindness, at once fate itself that just got him brought along to this whole process. I desperately tried to look up some of uh, Tom Snyder's, like, old um, animation stuff, like the kind of things they was working on. I could not find any footage of... Fizz and Martina's math adventures or math <laughs> mysteries or science seekers. But it all uh, basically revolves around uh, him developing the squiggle vision technique where yes, uh, static line vision. art was artificially kind of uh, the lines were just moved artificially to create this kind of vibrant moving aesthetic that separated it from the backgrounds and created kind of. It made the drawing seem more alive, especially on standard definition monitors. If you try and track mm-hmm. down like high definition footage of Dr. Katz, it looks awful now. But <laughs> on the standard definition old days, it really did make the drawings feel like very alive. There is one short you can track down called like Dr. Toaster. That was an <laughs> early pilot kind of uh, example of Tom Snyder's early computer animation work. And it is insane to think that that's where all of this got its start. Yeah, and I feel like uh, Dr. Katz might be a little obsolete for some people at this point, but it was such a mainstay, especially for comedy nerds. I think Dr. Katz Professional Therapist, start, it started airing on Comedy Central in May of t- 1995, and for a lot of us at home, just binging Comedy Central, it was always on at some point in the afternoon, and it was a very weird way to introduce a lot of people <laughs> and a lot of kids and aspiring comics to a ton of different comedians oh, that we may have never met that, you know, that we never, maybe have never seen their stand up rather or anything like that. And it was such an interesting showcase, but it was also them. It was this very loose conversation where, you know, you're getting to know a lot about their um, anxieties and insecurities and, and just their, you're not really like you're getting some of their material, but you're really more getting their personality shining through in these just back and forths between Dr. Katz and his his patients. I would not have, you know, this is, you know, little baby Jake just learning who the fuck Jim Gaffigan, Todd Barry, yeah. Janine Garofalo, yeah. all these like legend, Stephen Wright, all these great comedians being exposed to for the first time through Dr. Katz. Um, and the the, uh, you know, that's that was the bones of the show. But the the flesh, the muscle, the ligaments that held it all together uh, were these conversations between uh, Jonathan Katz and his son, who, uh, you know, as the series was being developed, uh, I believe it was Jonathan Katz who suggested to um, 
uh, Tom Snyder and Lauren Bouchard, who was on board as a producer, as an audio editor, as a uh, storyboard artist, just doing all the, you know, this was an insanely small scale production, especially initially, uh, was like, hey, I've been uh, watching this guy. He's uh, open for me a couple of times. He's got a really cool voice, H. John Benjamin. You should, uh, you know, bring him in. H. John Benjamin tells a story about being invited to Tom Snyder's home where Lauren had set up a recording studio in Snyder's food pantry. And so uh, John Benjamin was like literally auditioning for the role that would change his life Mm -hmm. next to a bunch of canned vegetables. (laughs) Also brought on uh, was... uh, H. John Benjamin's uh, girlfriend at the time, Laura Silverman, who uh, she was basically brought on because Tom Snyder liked how she was always rude to him whenever uh, he called to talk to John Benjamin. (laughs) And so between Katz and uh, Laura Silverman and H. John Benjamin, Bouchard would like record hours and hours and hours of these insanely long conversations, sometimes he would take like an entire three hour improvised back and forth between all these characters and just bring it into a like two minute scene. It was like his job to take this giant chunk of improv and reduce it to these perfectly natural, funny moments. And I think that's where Bouchard got his like true love for the uh, joy of a more natural comedy and conversation style. Yes. In what is normally an extremely regimented joke, punchline, visual gag, storyboard, animatic, overseas production, like extremely rigid uh, workflow that is traditionally associated with traditional animation. I said traditional a lot. Yeah, yeah. It, well, and that is that is definitely something they came up with on the spot and definitely why the show stood out so much. Bouchard said, my boss, Tom Snyder, and Jonathan Katz came up with this idea of recording a very loose conversation, some of it scripted, some of it improvised, some of it stand-up comedy, and then editing it on a computer, which was relatively new back in 1993-1994. We were able to do many more edits than if you were, say, cutting magnetic tape. So uh, another thing to keep in mind is the technological advancement. If they didn't have a computer to edit on, if it was like it was it was literally because the the old guard of of editing approach was changing from that very hands-on, very practical type of editing that would lead you to need to have to very specifically script every single moment, you know, because you cannot wade through that much material using fucking magnetic tape and cutting and splicing. I mean, it was just, it's impossible. The work would have been too great, but because they had the introduction of the computer, they could incorporate this style. So again, like history is being made in these little ways uh, via the use of technology and just approach to animation with Dr. Katz. So while Dr. Katz is still running, Bouchard and comedian Brendan Small, they go and co-create a show called Home Movies, which, of course, if you listen to our Adult Swim episode, you might remember first aired on UPN for like five episodes, but then it was Adult Swim who came in and salvaged the show where it enjoyed a much longer lifespan. So I didn't know this before I did research, but apparently Home Movies was supposed to be a Paula Poundstone vehicle. Uh, She had been doing a lot of uh, motherhood content in content. Jesus Christ. My brain's broken jokes. (laughs) Material in her stand-up. No, everything's act. content now, Jake. I mean, come on, jokes and flimflams and punchlines and bits. It's all content now. That's what we create. But you know, 
Bouchard and Tom Snyder and the entire production team over there were still very much based in the Boston area. And so it was Snyder who said like, hey, you know, you never know when you can, you know, the way we do these kind of shows is so dynamic and so up to the last minute and so reactive that you don't know when Paula Poundstone's going to be able to like be available. You got to get a local guy the same way we did with like H. John Benjamin and work with him and like kind of develop stuff with him. And so literally uh, Bouchard just like went to a comedy night, I believe, oh God, I think it's called the Comedy Studio. It's, I think it's still around. It's above a Chinese restaurant. Um, and saw uh, Eugene Merman and mm. Brendan Small, who were roommates at the time. And he approached Brendan Small and like working on the show with him, they were able to hone in on all these things like uh, the home movies angle, on the relationship between uh, Brendan Small and Coach McGurk and like all the things that made home movies so magical. Coach McGurk, man. Yeah, can I just take a quick aside and just say home movies is amazing. Please just check it out. H. John Benjamin as the coach. It's about like a few kids who are making, you know, home movies in their in their various houses. And then at school, it always cuts to them talking to uh, H. John Benjamin as Coach McGurk, which is definitely a massive highlight of the show. It's an oddly paced show it's it's uh definitely it's uh you know some episodes can be a little hit or miss but on the whole it is so good and so underappreciated and i just would encourage all of you to go watch home movies especially if you're a bob's burgers fan because that dna is very present in in home movies you know five we talked about how it was only five episodes on upn but that it was uh picked up by adult swim by this time, Tom Snyder, uh, the, the era of squiggle vision was over. Uh, Snyder had been working on the educational series, uh, Science Court, as well as the show Squiggle Vision. And just the the, the costs of using this uh, proprietary piece of animation software and the things they wanted to do in the show uh, just didn't pan out. So they switched to Flash. But that conversational tone, that uh, that dedication to having naturalistic reactions and like kind of a more homey, familiar relationship between the characters was alive and well. And then it, uh, then it ended. <laughs> so yeah, after Home Movies ended in 2004, Bouchard had a pilot called Saddle Rush that did not get picked up. Then a show Saddle called Rush. Lucy... It's a oh, did I say Rush? Yeah. No, it's a Saddle Rush. We're all rushing. Yeah, you're right. It's probably Saddle Rash, isn't it? Unbelievable. Who typed these notes for me? I typed these notes. Uh, so it's unfortunate. It's my fault. Uh, Saddle Rash that did not get picked up. And then a show called Lucy, Daughter of the Devil that aired briefly on Adult Swim about a young woman who is required by her father, the devil, to fulfill her duties as the Antichrist is set in San Francisco, where Lauren Bouchard is, uh, at that point living in, very much trying to kind of have that vibe. But also, if you notice, he's gone kind of full Adult Swim. It's yeah. very edgy. It's like, you know, obviously, if we're dealing in the Antichrist and the devil and comedy around that there's this definitely this very like i make underground indie animation for like like the stoners that are up at one in the morning right yeah that's where he finds himself when when he's like going in and taking a meeting at fox ophthalmologist dr strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? 
more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Lucy the Daughter of the Devil is actually a really important show uh, for... Bouchard, because it's his first time, uh, like, truly free of the soups to nuts. That was the name of the old animation company. Expectations. Uh, the jokes are extremely dark. They're extremely violent. Um, once again, he brings back H. John Benjamin as the voice of the devil. Uh, but also, he starts collaborating with a lot of younger female writers and producers, including uh, Nora Smith, who is... Uh, the daughter of an executive who was working at Adult Swim at the time, and she was trying to get her foot in the door. And uh, when talking about her, uh, he basically attributes to, like, the entire finished episode is, like, down to her. Uh, her last step is post. She did the special effects, the title sequences, the end credits, um, new music and design. Uh, you know, the... Post is overseen by Nora Smith, who possesses a rare mix of talents. When you see the title sequences, that's all Nora. She's a one-woman animation shop. And uh, Nora ends up, uh, she's the co-writer of the upcoming movie. She actually has mm -hmm. a huge impact on the, uh, the the scope of Bob's Burgers, the general direction it ends up going on. Um, and there's other writers and other collaborators that, she, that Bouchard brings in for Lucy, Daughter of the Devil. Uh, and as you said, the executive uh, at Fox, Susanna Makos, Makos, there's two K's in the last name, and now I'm scared to pronounce it. It's Mako, Jake. <laughs> Come on. You've been to Midgar before. You know it's Mako. Uh, Susanna Makos, uh, who is actually currently the co-head of animation for Fox and Adult Swim, now that like everything's been absorbed into everything in the streaming era. She was uh, working on another project. She actually had a run of great uh, shows on uh, Fox as through the, uh, she was the VP of comedy. She was responsible for Brooklyn Nine-Nine, New Girl, bunch of other stuff. Um, she was looking for an animation house. And so one of the reels was sent by Fluid Animation, the upstart CG company that did work on Lucy, Daughter of the Devil. And it was like a 30 second clip of uh, the titular character, Lucy, asking her dad, Satan, played by H. John Benjamin, about buying a dress. And uh, she remembers John Benjamin as Satan being like, are you sure you're a size four? I don't want to have to pay for it. And then you got to return it. <laughs> like, and just that immediate, like casual meanness, but familial love, like resonated with her. And she called Lauren Bouchard to have a meeting and he just flew right over there the next day. That's amazing. Yeah. It's around this time in the late aughts that Bouchard takes a general meeting with executives at Fox who showed interest in working with him. Bouchard said, 
I basically knew that the formula, if you will, for their Sunday night shows was family. And not just stuff that would be appropriate for a family to watch, but more importantly, a show about a family. Very quickly, I got this idea of a family that works in a restaurant together. I had read an article about a restaurant on Route 1 in Saugus, Massachusetts. The family's grandfather started it, the father worked there his whole life, and now his kids are working there. I like the idea of generations working in a restaurant in one of these pizza or burger places. Later on, I decided to lop off the older generation and just focus on the mother, father, and their kids, and the throwback type idea of that younger generation working in their parents' restaurant. It felt kind of like I could have my cake and eat it too, which is to say you can do a family and workplace comedy all at the same time. And that's uh, when Bouchard also gets the help of Jim uh, uh, Dotteriv. 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 Like uh, like the character from King of the Hill. Oh, yeah. Didn't even think about that. Who joined? uh, uh, Dotteriv joined King of the Hill as a writer in his first season and became an executive producer of the show as well throughout its run in order to really like kind of get it, it take him from Adult Swim to Fox right that's a journey for sure so this is how eventful and how again once again the same kind of providence that led to uh, Bouchard meeting Tom Snyder in the middle of Cambridge that uh, random afternoon uh, Makos uh, the VP of comedy at Fox had her parents owned a restaurant that went bankrupt when she was a kid, according to the quote. Um, It had red stools, the whole thing. The Belcher, she said, felt real. They can't pay rent and they have a crazy landlord or they want to send Tina to horse camp, but they can't afford it. It's just their reality, but it's not depressing, but we're not shying away from the truth of that. Um, So like even just his initial pitch of just going for this like restaurant family thing the perfect pitch for this exact executive at Fox, which is like insane. Um, obviously, working with Dotrieve on King of the Hill, she brings Dotrieve in to help with this because, I mean, you can take the the Adult Swim out of the boy, but you can't take the boy out of the Adult Swim. That's not a saying, but my mouth said it like it was. Part of the initial pitch, because he thought the restaurant concept didn't have enough of a hook, was that the Belchers were a family of cannibals and that they served human meat at the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, so what's so funny is Ed Fox, of course, uh, is like, we like everything about it, love the workplace comedy, love the cast you assembled, I'll get into that in just a second. Uh, all of it, except for the thing that makes it like at all like crazy and different which it would be the cannibalism angle and for and, and it's good on him for yeah. saying it but it is very funny that they're like 200 episodes of cannibal <laughs> jokes like it's it's unsustainable <laughs> but uh there is early test footage that they showed to the fox executives um even like pre-pilot of john benjamin as uh bob and uh john roberts as uh linda where they're doing basically almost verbatim the uh, anniversary conversation from the first episode. You know, like, nine is divisible by three, Bob! Like, that whole thing. But they are grinding up hands and feet and, like, (laughs) assorted human parts in a very crude black-and-white animatic style. So funny. Well, I want to get more into uh, the people behind that animatic. But first, let's go ahead, since we're talking about it, let's introduce this cast that was really signed on pretty much from the beginning. Bouchard said, I have a philosophy about this that I've used on almost every show I've worked on, and that is find people you want to work with and then build characters around those actors. It saves you a tremendous amount of trouble. Writing a character and conceiving 
conceiving of him or her and then going out and trying to cast is something I've almost never done. Yes, we've done it for bit parts, but for a major part, I'd be terrified. It just seems too hard. The role of Bob, of course, played by John Benjamin. Um, uh, Bouchard said, I've only ever done shows with John and them. I don't even want to know what it's like to do a show without him. I knew I wanted him as the dad, and we built the family around him. So they started with that, of course. Um, And by the way, H. John Benjamin, we should also say... Started out in Boston, uh, worked in a, always an ensemble player, essentially, worked in a comedy duo at first. Then he was a part of David Cross's uh, kind of legendary group out there, Cross Comedy, before David Cross went to L.A. and started doing Mr. Show. Uh, and he he's always been that perfect ensemble player that can really roll with people. Very rarely has done his own thing. And, you know, he also, yeah, uh, very rarely done his own thing. Linda, Bob's wife, is voiced by John Roberts. He first gained notoriety by writing and starring in a viral comedy short titled Jackie and Deborah, which led to appearing multiple times on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon before landing the part of Linda, which, again, was written specifically for him. And he apparently based this character on his own mother, which is oddly enough named Marge. It is weird. Uh, there's photos of them together. Uh, he acknowledges that, like, it is absolutely an homage to his mother. Uh, he actually went. This is such a weird thing because, like, a lot of times we talk about something going viral in the 2000s and it's only like 30,000 views on YouTube 1.0 or whatever. But uh, he really did go viral on the early internet. Some of like, yeah. you know, uh, it, YouTube was barely a year old and he posted these kind of very well edited kind of montages of him in a red wig uh, doing an impersonation of his mother. Uh, sometimes it would be about the Christmas tree. Sometimes it would be about shopping at Macy's. But it's basically Linda's voice. It is almost yeah. 100% Linda's voice. You can watch all these sketches on YouTube and it's very funny seeing this proto version of the character. Um, and Bouchard saw those online and went out to see him at Comics Comedy Club in New York, RIP, Ochi's Lounge, gone but not forgotten. Ochi's Lounge, yeah, 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 for sure. And uh, after a short conversation, cast him on the spot, and I was thinking, like, oh, that's, like, kind of intense, you know, why... Why would you know, it's just weird? You know, uh, he didn't have personal experience with him. He was, you know, John Roberts wasn't a Boston guy. Like, how did that come to be? And realizing, you know, Bouchard lost his mother at a young age. And here was John Roberts doing this pitch perfect Brooklyn mom voice, maybe like resonated with him on a really deep level. And, you know, once that uh, test footage of uh, John Benjamin as Bob and Roberts as Linda was made and they really did have like great chemistry. You know, Linda has all this energy. Bob is this like defeated man who's just trying to like manage her almost manic excitement about everything. Like <laughs> from minute one that they're like on screen together in an animated capacity, you're like, oh, there's something here. They have a great dynamic. And it's the relationship between the two, this believable middle-aged couple that still very much cares for each other and knows each other and respects each other. That is part of the cozy experience of Bob's Burgers. Bouchard said, I knew that John Roberts, who plays Linda, could do that voice and that Kristen Shaw could be Louise. I've always wanted to work with her. I knew she would be an incredible little girl. Shaw was raised on her family's cattle ranch outside of Boulder, Colorado, and after college, she moved to New York City to pursue a career in comedy. 
There, she did a ton of improv and hosted an amazing show, a variety show called Hot Tub with co-host Kurt Braunhaller. This is probably my favorite show that I did in New York City. I got to do it several times. Uh, At one point, there was a uh, uh, puppy parade. They were doing um, a uh, fundraiser for, I think, like an animal shelter. And we all got to take a bunch of puppies. My buddy John from Murder Fist dressed up in a huge unicorn like mascot costume. And we literally took the audience out of the theater um, and we marched all over Brooklyn much to the delight of everybody in the neighborhood as we paraded these puppies around the street. It was that kind of show. It was that show that like just ceaselessly never, never, never ceased to surprise me. And they would book incredible talents. Murder Fist got to do it. My sketch group got to do it multiple times. And again, it was like, fuck yeah, they booked us on Hot Tub again. That's going to be the highlight of my month. And Kristen Shaw, of course, uh, you know, we weren't like buddies or anything, but from the little bit uh, that I got to hang out with her in green rooms and stuff, such a delight and an incredible talent to watch on stage. uh, Much like Eugene Merman. Bouchard said, Eugene Merman, the voice of Gene, is an actor who, again, I've been working with for a long time. I knew he would be great. Merman was born in Russia, and his family immigrated to the U.S. when he was four years old. He went to one of those design-your-own-major colleges and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Comedy by doing a one-hour routine as his thesis, so clearly kind of always knew where he was headed. Merman was a New York City comedy mainstay all through the aughts and co-hosted a hugely popular underground show called Invite Them Up, which led to a ton of TV work, including home movies and a bunch of other stuff on Adult Swim and Comedy Central, and again, the other weird connection of like, wow, it's weird to do an episode where I'm like, I used to do shows with that guy. And again, he was always incredibly kind and wonderful and cultivated, almost more importantly, really cultivated, much like Kurt and Kristen, a a vibrant underground comedy scene in New York City that I don't even know if it exists anymore. I mean, it really was a special time to be doing indie comedy uh, living living in the city. I mean, okay, well... I did Big Terrific with Jenny Slate once. So, you know, you don't see me bragging. It was a very well-attended <laughs> Brooklyn comedy show. Big Terrific was an amazing show. I don't think I ever got to do it. Yeah, yeah. The last member of the cast that we have to acknowledge is uh, Dan Mintz, who uh, was personally recommended by H. John Benjamin, who was working uh, on the same show, Important Things with Dimitri Martin. Dan Mintz, another Rafifi, uh, Brooklyn, New York, invite them up comedian guy uh, had a very like stilted one-liner kind of a think a, a, a nervous Mitch Hedberg kind of uh, yeah. delivery H. John Benjamin was like you gotta like listen to this guy it feels like every word out of his mouth cracks me up and uh, Bouchard agreed and he was brought in as the character we all know and love Daniel Belcher <laughs> yes Bouchard said, the only person I didn't know was Dan Mintz. John Benjamin recommended him, saying, you've really got to hear this guy's voice. It is so funny. And we cast him as Tina, although originally we cast him as a boy. It was only after the pilot episode and Fox's feedback that we realized the character wasn't quite there. So we kept the voice and actor, but changed the gender. He was thrilled. And uh, Mintz got his first writing job on the prank call comedy show, puppet, Comedy Central puppet show, Crank Yankers. And from there, he got a ton of writing work on shows like John Benjamin Has a Van and Nathan For You. But more importantly, he was so happy that how rare does this happen that the entire gender of the character changed yeah. fundamentally. And they were, and even though he didn't do any other voices, that's just kind of his voice. They were like, no, no, no. 
You can just keep doing your thing. You're just a girl now. <laughs> he was so happy. I actually and, really and we love, are too. Tina's um, so much funnier than a male version of the character. The Fox executives literally said, like, uh, Daniel, the character of Daniel's like overdone. He's not too dist- he's just another weird boy, the same as uh-huh. Gene. Like you re- you know, you really should change it. And if you watch the original pilot episode with uh Dan Mintz as Daniel Belcher, and you watch the actual first episode with Dan Mintz as Tina, they're pretty much the exact same jokes. Mm-hmm. Like, instead of talking about his balls, he's just talking about his crotch. But, like, it is so, at least initially, before they get into the stuff like the horses and the fan fiction and really flesh the character out, it's almost verbatim the same jokes. Uh that they had written for the character of Daniel. It's very it's it's so funny how that just fixed itself so easily and I think I just don't see the show without Tina. I think most people's favorite character oh, is Oh god. <laughs> she's including myself. Like yeah, she's incredible. Yeah, no. She's it's an you know, the the nerdy boy has been done a million times. Like, we've been urkled up the ass by this point. Like, oh, geez, I'm good at computers, but g- girls, like, it's been, it's just completely done where, like, a lot of these characters, actually, now that I'm talking about it, uh, you know, Bart Simpson and Lisa are almost perpetually frozen in the 1960s childhood of the original writers. Um But the Belchers are very much like millennial kids. Tina is obsessed with fan fiction. Uh, You know, Louise is an avid weeb. You know, all of her, she's into samurai movies and collects like Sanrio style uh, collectible monsters like Pokemon, like Kuchikopi and all this stuff. Uh, Gene, a little bit uh, weirdly obsessed with 80s synthesizers, but like... Whatever, Eugene Merman. He's, I'm sure he's drawing on his own childhood. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like the characters of Tina and Louise are very much more millennial current characters than pretty much anywhere else on television at the time. And that resonated with a millennial nerd audience that bought hundreds of thousands of Tina t-shirts and Funko Pops and all sorts of uh, countless tattoos of her riding a unicorn. <laughs> Urkled up the ass was not a phrase I was expecting to hear today, but I'm happy it happened. Did I do that? <laughs> this Laura, that I was, everybody was just Urkled up the ass back then. <laughs> Welding instructor, Alex declare knows VR training platforms like forge FX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So a couple more things about the proof of concept that they made for uh, Fox. Um, and another thing that speaks towards Lauren Bouchard's constant want to just keep it in the family. He ends up uh, pulling in a couple of folks just in his neighborhood to do the art for this thing, including character designer Jay Howell and background designer uh, Siren Norris. Uh, 
And Siren Norris caught Lauren's eye as with his murals of Victorian buildings all over San Francisco. Howell actually worked at Bouchard's coffee shop. And according to Howell, I was doing some personal comics and stuff and would hand them over the counter to him because he lived around the corner. And then as time went on, we just kept the relationship going. One day he was like, hey, do you want to start maybe working on something together? So, yeah, that, it's kind of amazing how he was constantly just looking around his neighborhood and pulling different people. And I think it's passing that that torch forward too to other people because he was so lucky and blessed to have just an old friend, an old mentor, or whoever just approach him and be like, hey, do you want to just like do this thing? I know you have Zippo actual professional working experience, but come come in. Let's let's figure this thing out. Uh, and moving on to another part of the family, the writing process. The uh, initial writing staff was around 17 people. But it has grown since then while still keeping that initial group. Bouchard said, they will come up with the story ideas. We develop them until it either seems like it wants to be an episode or it wants to be killed. They work so hard and sometimes we'll rewrite an episode four times right up until the show is about to air. We're still tinkering with it. That's what's great about doing an animated show with Fox in particular. The budget allows us to take our time with an episode, no less than nine months and sometimes a year from start to finish. In the last big push, we'll all get in a room together and put the episode on a screen. You use all the brains in the room as if they're your brain. So a fully ensemble approach and on every level. And again, I think that's what adds to this cohesive sense of what the show is. And in fact, they talk a lot about not breaking the show. This was also brought up again when they talked about the movie upcoming, because again, they were worried about taking things and making them so big, they wouldn't be able to take it back to the smaller screen. (laughs) There's such attention given to all ideas going into the show, every single episode, never breaking too far from the core heart of the show and the core characters and stuff because they they're so afraid of like hurting their baby it seems in a lot of ways and like pushing it into territories that would just remove it from you know the cohesiveness that they have uh in in terms of a, a full product and i think that's really cool and there's just a lot of discourse about that oh uh i was going to uh go on a little side rant about the animation process for the show okay yeah i, I, I just a little I, all i have left on the writing um uh, of course a lot of their story ideas come from their home lives according to writer Nora smith i mean we all have kids and we take the stories from trying to be good parents And our parents, we bring a lot of our real life to a lot of these episodes and the movie. And I think we just want to protect our little special unique children and how they're just weirdos. And I think we want Bob and Linda to be that way too, because they have a lot in common. We have a lot in common with them as well. Linda was very weird when she was younger in a wonderful way. Smith also talks about how the writing process can be like therapy for the staff as they are working through their own stuff with family and what it should be and what they struggle with while also living in a reality of a super supportive family all the time, which can be a very healing thing to do for the staff as well, which I think is a beautiful thing. Um, All right, Jake, take it away. Take us to Animation Town. Oh, wait, but now I remembered something about the... uh The Molyneux sisters. All right, Jake, let's return to the writing palace. (laughs) The two of the most notable writers from the Bob's Burgers writing staff is Wendy and Lizzie Molyneux. Uh, They've recently become famous by uh, becoming the uh, show creators and showrunners of the show uh, The Great North, which is 
I actually really like it. It features Jenny Slade and a bunch of other comedy royalty people. It takes It's a family based in Alaska. Very nice. That's all I'm going to mention about it. But um, they actually got a meeting with uh, Jim Dotry and Lauren Bouchard. And they were uh, just kind of talked about their own childhoods. And they kind of recognized that they needed more like honest to God millennial women's perspectives in the writer's room to fuel stories with characters like uh, Louise and Tina. Uh, a famous episode is one where Louise becomes obsessed with the fake boy band Boys For Now, and that was based on Lizzie's own love of the Backstreet Boys. It's, uh, you know, they have a whole backlog of 80s and 90s references that they kind of weave into the show, and their you know, unique voice really does uh, go through on it. I just, we needed to acknowledge the Molyneux sisters if we're going to acknowledge Please. the writer's room. absolutely. One of the things that you don't really think about with Bob's Burgers is their animation is done by Bento Box Entertainment, which was this uh, animation upstart created by Joel Kuahara, uh, who was a former producer on The Simpsons. And what they did was kind of take the uh, standard production pipeline where uh, U.S. animators storyboard and uh, anima- and create an animatic and then send it overseas to Korea, which can be a very timely, time-intensive and expensive process. Uh, there's a language barrier. There's a lot of issues where if a culture, if something just doesn't translate and the animators go ahead and animate a scene and an emotion isn't conveyed correctly or uh, an item that the animators aren't familiar with is drawn wrong, it'll all kind of fall apart and ha- costly reshoots have to happen. And what uh, Bento Box kind of did was they worked with Toon Boom, which is kind of the de facto digital animation software that has replaced Flash now that macro, now that... Uh, Adobe has kind of left Flash to die. I mean, Flash is dead. Flash is dead. You can't even, your browser doesn't even support it anymore. (laughs) And so uh, it was a very painstaking process for Bento Box to kind of take this Toon Boon software, uh, adapt it to uh, Korean, and sent it over to various animation houses and telling them, you know, don't paint the backgrounds anymore. Use this software. Don't animate on cells anymore. Use this software. Uh, And it was Yisan Entertainment that actually said yes to this all digital pipeline and really gives Bob's Burgers a lot of fine control on a lower budget. Uh, The staff at Bento Box have run Tumblr blogs about the behind the scenes process. They work on the comic series that have come out over the years. They're a very uh, young and dynamic company that really appreciates the fans. They've since go on to animate stuff like, uh, well, I was, well, uh, stuff like Central Park on Apple Plus, another Bouchard uh, creation, The Great North, and also things like uh, Brickleberry. <laughs> Interesting shots fired, Jake Young. Uh, a little bit about the cast recording process. Though it had to change during pandemic, the cast was for the most part recorded each episode in the same room so that they can riff with each other and play off each other. John Roberts uh, has this to say about the process. Usually the first two takes, we stick to the script. And then the third take, we'll have a little fun. And Lauren is very patient in letting us go and have fun with that moment. And according to John Roberts, the cast is, quote, really good with not laughing over uh, when someone's having a moment to just let them go. 
We're very good at respecting each other's moments, and it is like a volleyball team or something where we're all kind of passing the ball to each other. And that definitely makes sense and definitely bleeds through, and that is where the Dr. Katz DNA really shines forth in Bob's Burgers. And you do have this vibe in the show, which again leads to this very down-home family feel of people talking over each other a little bit more. There being just a little bit more of uh, what feels like unplanned moments that make us feel like, oh, I'm hanging out with like a, f- a, a real family. It is almost narcotic, these moments in the show where you can hear H. John Benjamin laugh with delight at what his scene partner just kind of came up with on the spot. And it mirrors the kind of like quiet pride that a father has of his own children. <laughs> It's like so good when it happens. It's like one of my favorite things in the world on the show. Yeah. One last animation note, because I just, I need to acknowledge this. Uh, One of the supervising directors of Bob's Burgers is an animator named Bernard Derryman that I was a huge fan of in the 2000s because he made what were basically like, I'm going to say, cinematic quality flash animations back on the Newgrounds era. These were shorts that he made, uh, sometimes a little bit dirty, sometimes beautiful. Uh, I remember one which was a music video for the song Everyone Else Has Had More Sex Than Me featuring a singing rabbit. (laughs) He was this guy out in Australia basically working for the uh, content mill that was the Walt Disney Sydney studio that made all of those shitty direct-to-VHS Disney sequels that, like... This guy like cut his teeth working on the Hunchback of Notre Dame for Return to Hunch Mountain. And <laughs> he kind of had an appreciation for stand-up. He actually he worked on an animated series called Arjun Poopy featuring Arj Barker, who is a comedian I personally appreciate, but in Australia he is comedy ge- Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you knew that about Arch Barker, Australian comedy Jesus. Yeah, yeah, of course. I remember his last special, Australian comedy Jesus. Uh, Fantastic stuff. He really elevated the animation work in uh, Bob's Burgers. A lot of what I would call Bob's Burgers Sakuga is uh, a lot of stuff that Derryman personally worked on and mapped out and did animatics for. The... uh, the closing sequence for the Christmas, one of the Christmas episodes where uh, Mr. Fish Odor, voiced by Kevin Klein, whose kids were a fan of Eugene Merman and was convinced to do the role on the show because of that, uh, where he goes like, oh, burpin, oh, burpin, burpin, burpin. That was uh, done by Derryman. He eventually uh, is, you know, besides being a supervising director and producing on Great North and Central Park, he co-directed the Bob's Burgers movie. Uh, And so it's actually from an animation perspective, I'm actually really excited to see what Bento Box and Dairyman and all these people actually get to do with a little bit of budget and a little bit of time to actually craft and, you know, see what this kind of limited, smooth, lumpy style can do. Of course, the show, much like The Simpsons, also boasts a ton of incredible guest stars. Uh, great, great comedic talents and actors and whatnot. Uh, you've got John Hamm as a robotic luxury toilet. Jenny Slate as Tina's bad influence, Tammy. Uh, Will Forte as Upskirt Kurt. Bill Hader as Mickey, the lovable bank robber. You've got Aziz Ansari. Cindy Lauper singing a goof on her own uh, Goonies theme, which we talked about uh, in the Goonies episode. And just so many others. Megan Mullally uh, as Linda's sister, Gail. <laughs> Nick Offerman, Catherine Hahn, John Glazer, Thomas Lennon, and Samantha B. Patton Oswald, Amy Sedaris, Fred Armisen, Zach Galifianakis, and I had to quit. I had to stop writing names down after 
ultra point. It it just it's a nonstop uh, shit show of co- comedic talent. Once in a while, in Bob's Burgers, you'll see a character that clearly has the energy of a uh, hot comedian. Uh, but it won't be voiced by them. And that is definitely because they wrote that character hoping to get that person and they just couldn't get the schedules to work. Uh, and of course, the music's fantastic. The The theme music was composed by Lauren Bouchard and that is actually him on the ukulele. Uh, the other credited composers for the show are John Dylan Keith and a duo based in New York called Elegant Two, which consists of Chris Maxwell and Phil Hernandez. John Dylan Keith and Lauren Bouchard were friends in high school and played in a band together back then. Again, family, family, family. Uh, They reconnected in New York in the early aughts, and Keith composed on Lucy, Daughter of the Devil. I mean, it really is the insane clown posse juggalo of um, animated American television. Uh, The key has been to create tracks that maintain a homemade vibe while also breaching into bigger musical territories. Also, big acts have, of course, done the show since then. We already mentioned Cyndi Lauper. You also have The National, St. Vincent, and Fiona Apple, among others. And John Dylan Keith has just talked about how thrilled he's been to get to kind of ass backwards being able to work with like these amazing people, <laughs> these amazing musicians that are obviously fans of the show and uh, and getting involved in in, a, in the musical aspect. And musical is just a big part of it. Of course, you've got Gene who loves his keyboard, his synth stuff, and you've got Linda who is always down to croon a song. It's inherent in the show, but unlike The Simpsons and you know even like Family Guy and stuff like that, where they usually like bust into these big Broadway number type deals. The music in this show, you can almost say it's maybe more similar to like Adventure Time. It's like Mm -hmm. inherent in the show. Mm -hmm. There's, and which is an approach to musical stuff that I absolutely love. I'm a huge fan of like the movies Once and Sing Street, that kind of thing. And I think that's why I'm really drawn to the music in this show. It happens really just kind of within the actual, you know, uh, plot of the show as opposed to being like, and now a musical number. well, that's, you know, it's, a lot of the recent seasons will just every single credits, they'll just break out into a musical number or take like a little ditty that was like done earlier in the episode and blow it up to a full musical production with everybody dancing. It's fun. Yeah, it's yeah. fun. Uh, for sure. For sure. Uh, but anyways, the music's just such a great thing. It needs to be highlighted in the show. It's wonderful. And I do love that like they talk about in the movie upcoming how they're bringing a little bit more of uh, bigger numbers to the screen. And as they've gone on, they've always kept that vibe of like ukulele instruments a family would play together and, and songs families would sing together naturally and just adding little bits of like Hollywood flourish to those things, but always trying to keep it again about that vibe, that feeling of, of the kind of music that just happens in a family that is enjoys singing and enjoys making music together. And there are even episodes centered around that, which we'll get into Jake. Um, what I have left is mostly highlight episodes to, uh, uh, suggest to people to watch, um, or at least to celebrate, uh, in this, uh, our episode on Bob's burgers. Do you have anything else about the making of any of that stuff before we, kind of close it out with that and and a little bit of hype for the movie coming up. I will say there is a great article that came out, unfortunately, just before we recorded. So we had barely time Mm. to incorporate it. But uh, in the New York Times, it's called Why is Bob's Burger so freakishly lovable? This guy, 
Um, and the author talks about uh, uh, sitting in on a Zoom meeting of the Bob's uh, Burgers writers. Uh, the author says, I was struck not only by the ease and lack of hierarchy, like a family writing about a family, but by the way that as adjustments were made to a script, the better joke didn't always win. Pacing, tone, and trueness to character were more essential. The show's humor, Bouchard would tell me later, is so character-driven as to be almost fragile. Each line needs to be delivered just so, or it risks throwing off the entire scene. It's not, there is no bulletproof joke that can work with any delivery in this show. Yeah, I love that. And again, it speaks towards what I was talking about with the fragility of the show, how, how much care they put into never breaking from what they want that show to be. And, and really, essentially, a great, a great focus on even after 238 episodes, never dr- jumping the shark in any huge way. Mm-hmm. And I would even say at this point, they're starting to be more consistent than The Simpsons. Because, of course, we all lament. Starting? The, the Simpsons hasn't been consistent for 30 years. <laughs> Well, no, yeah, but I mean, how many seasons was it before The Simpsons became inconsistent? Oh. Is what I'm kind of saying. Oh. Like, I think they're starting to crack the code a little bit better, whereas The Simpsons did jump off in quality and uh, a little sooner. Whereas, wh- what are we up to? Season 11? Uh, with 12. Bob's Burgers? 12. Season 12, and they're still doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think around season 12 is probably when The Simpsons started to fall off quality-wise. I will say, like The Simpsons, the first season was a little bit rocky. Yes. And it took until season three, four, five, just like The Simpsons, where... They were just like nailing it almost every episode. Yeah, I think we didn't we uh, we didn't really mention how the reaction initially to Bob's Burgers was kind of awkward from audiences and critics alike, and I think that that just comes with the territory with a show that ends up lasting as long as this does. They, there's always a little bit of finding their footing up top. It was a little more, I think, right, crass. Oh then, yeah, no. The, there was still a little bit of that Adult Swim edgy humor uh-huh. that kind of was still making its way through the show, but very quickly they got it out of their systems. Very yeah. very quickly, and yeah. then even by edgy joke standards, it's I'm not like it's not like they were making abortion jokes. Like it's not right, right. Yeah. Exactly. All right. I, you might have some for yourself, Jake, uh, but I definitely wrote down. There's too many. Again, it's like the guest star thing. There's too many great episodes to cover all of them in this. So I at least tried to put down really good showcase episodes for each member of the family and uh, some of their bigger hits. Of course, one of the first episodes I actually watched, but I still wanted to put it down because I do think it is just that great. The Horse Riderer Season 6, Episode 17. Mm. Tina struggles to let go of her imaginary horse Jericho, played by Paul Rudd. It's really so that good. She can focus on the real horse in her life. Plops. Uh, it's so fucking funny and such a good showcase piece for how weird and horny <laughs> Tina is as a character. And another great Tina showcase is Bad Tina, season two, mm. episode eight, for an earlier version that also features uh, Tammy, voiced by Jenny Slate, and Tina's crush Jimmy Jr., voiced by H. John Benjamin, who's another big character mainstay in the show. Uh, another one people love to point to, had to note it here, Fluise, Season 7, Episode 1, a wild fantasy trip that Louise goes on when she gets the flu and her favorite toy accidentally gets ruined. Has a lot of just really fun animation 
sweeps as well as a great showpiece for Louise and another saw Louise app Earsy uh, Rider. Uh, this is a unique one too because her classic animal ears, her bunny ears, uh, are uh, is like the only episode where you see them not on her head at points in the episode because her nemesis Logan, who is actually voiced by Shaw's comedy partner Kurt Braunholler, who again I can't um, push this point home enough. Kurt Braunholler is amazing and one of my favorite people I met doing comedy in New York. Look up uh, Kirsten Shaw as a horse. Yes. If you need to see their energy together back when they were doing comedy as a duo. So, and they're still, do, I, they're still doing hot tub out here oh, in LA, wow. which really? is amazing. I need to go. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Jesus. I don't know if it's still going since pandemic, but yeah, I believe they've been doing it out here. Uh, it also introduces the biker gang, the one-eyed snakes. And again, just a great, I, we were talking about it in the study Sunday study session, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew every $15 every week on Sundays on our discord. You can hang out with us while we cover whatever episode we're researching and it was mentioned in that Sunday study session that you know one of the great things about Louise is she always has like a nemesis like like uh, uh, someone she's pitted up against because she's her character so fiery Mm -hmm. or whatever and and this is a great example of just that like she's always fighting against someone you know the topsy episode Mm -hmm. as well is a great example of that that we watched uh, together during that session Uh, that uh, the song Jake's song Uh, in the beginning of the episode. Bob Actually, season seven, episode nine, is a Valentine's Day episode featuring fantastic animation and great musical numbers that has the whole family swooning in their various ways. That's much more of a just a great showcase for uh, how they're not wonderful ensemble uh, and with great songs and animation stuff going on. Eat Spray Linda is our Linda showcase great episode. Linda Actually, episode. Just, just watched it before we uh, got on because I love how like lovable it, she is and yet how much shit she can stir <laughs> with people. People in her community, and like you kind of love that about her as the viewer as well. Uh, but, anyways, yeah, it has her on an epic odyssey to get to and from the grocery store on her birthday, and it's really, really well done. And another solid Linda app in the earlier, um, I think the earliest uh, episode I have on here is Hamburger Dinner Theater, season one, episode five. Uh, the Itty Bitty Diddy Committee, Season 5, Episode 15, is your Gene episode. It has him starting a band with the family. He At one point, he considers quitting music. It showcases his passion for music as well as, you know, just his quirky character in general. Uh, and, of course, we need a good showcase for Bob, right? Bob Day Afternoon. Uh this one is great for multiple reasons. It also showcases Bill Hader as the bank robber. That, oh, it's uh, a great up, episode. He ends up taking Bob hostage and then needing Bob's support to get through the bank robbery. Uh, fantastic, classic episode. Um, and then I uh, just have one more example. There's so many. There's the two-parter uh, Christmas episode. I forget the name of that one. I meant to put that one down as well. Uh, that's fantastic with a lot of great songs and stuff. Their holiday stuff is great. The haunting uh, there's, Halloween, there's a few Thanksgiving, Christmas—they always yeah, do one. And always it, Valentine's great. Day, they also do one. It's always great. Uh, I want to throw out a couple episodes that I personally loved. Um, season five, episode twenty-one, "The Odor Games" is a that was what I was about to bring up, what? Jake. Thank God you. It. Close uh, it out for me. Is a uh, Mr. Fish Odor heavy episode in which Bob organizes a tenant strike, only to be pit against uh, him and his fellow renters. In a uh, hilarious uh, Squid Games-like tournament where he has to basically overcome the crab in the bucket class politics that pits the working poor against each other. Uh, It's funny. It's got a message. It really hits home. 
It's fantastic. Another one is uh, the season six finale, Glued, Where's My Bob? That kind of uh, brings up Bob's personal frustrations and his uh, need to succeed by on his own terms and his relationship with his family. It ends on an incredible musical sequence. Uh, one of my favorite musical sequences in the entire show. Fantastic episode. And uh, the episode that honestly put Bob's Burgers on the map for me, or at least like made me finally consider like, oh, I, oh, I guess this show is doing things, is season four, episode 17, The Equestronauts, where Bob is sent to a brony convention. It's They never called bronies, but like, while the brony phenomenon was still very much a intense and constant presence in online discourse, uh, the fact that the show did have, uh, when they wanted it to, a very quick turnaround and that this was a writing team that was very much of my internet-connected millennial cohort, uh, it really kind of came, the idea that on a primetime Fox sitcom, they were going to get deep into brony jokes was like a very kind of like, oh, oh, okay. Okay, this show's different. This show's different. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Well, there you have it, Bob's Burgers, when you hear your family. Uh, that's been our episode. I hope we did it justice. It is such a classic, and I know how many people, just how many people love this show, and as do I. It's kind of undeniable. God, I hope the movie's good. Otherwise, this episode will be awkward. And we'll be fucked. And you're welcome to DM either one of us on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and just write in all caps, you're fucked. I and went to the theater and a man <laughs> coughed on me and I have infected my entire family with the Omicron variant and I oh blame you, Holden McNeely, for this. <laughs> it's the outbreak. Uh, it's like outbreak all over again. It's uh, literally, all right. I could see the droplets spread from person to person like the movie. Outbreak. Hey man, can I get some of them droplets? <laughs> the street value is high on those things. All right, we got to get out of here. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Check us out if you'd like to support us further. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. That's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew for weekly bonus episodes for just $5 a month. Also, for $15 a month, you can join us on Discord every Sunday for the Sunday study session um, where we, last week, we watched uh, episodes of Bob, Bob's Burger. It was fucking it was awesome. amazing. It so, was great. Consider joining us for that. And besides that, check me out on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. That's twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Uh, I stream Mondays and Tuesdays and Fridays. And I think someone else might be streaming. Uh-oh. Knock, knock, knock. Who's that at the door? Jake? Hi, thanks for letting me in. It's very cold out there. <laughs> Follow me on it Twitter. May 26th. <laughs> I have what doctors call chili blood, and I'd prefer if you didn't make a big deal about it. Follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young and uh, Puppet Jared. It's a streaming content empire that I'm building. I, am, I have a VTuber avatar. He's delightful. Maybe you've seen him on Holden's stream over at the Money Pit. I don't know your life. Go to youtube.com slash puppetjared or twitch.tv slash puppetjared to watch along. Thursdays is the big night. Thursdays, 7 p.m., the cartoon dumpster. We watch bad old cartoons. We make fun of them. We have a grand old time. If you like this show, if you like the energy that we're throwing out there, if you like this nostalgia pop culture bullshit, I guarantee, that's right, occasion style guarantee, <laughs> all right, all right. that you will appreciate it. Uh, twitch.tv slash puppetjared, youtube.com slash puppetjared, Thursdays, 7 p.m. Eastern. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing, please. <laughs> <laughs>
I need you to do this for me. Let the boy whiz in your house. <laughs> <laughs> This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.